We're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. We're in the midst of what is called a household table, uh, which was uh, guidance and direction for uh, members of a household. We've already looked at the relationship between husbands and wives. We've looked at the relationship between children and parents. And today we're going to be looking at uh, this interesting text about slaves and masters. You'll notice that uh, our hymns have all mentioned uh, masters or slaves or servants or that sort of thing. We're building up on that theme today. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, the text here begins today with a very provocative word, slaves. This is one of those texts that critics of the Bible and Christianity like to throw out and say, See, the Bible is culturally repressive, primitive, and offensive because it justifies and promotes slavery. Therefore, we should not take Christianity seriously. Well, slavery is certainly a black mark on our nation's history, especially in the South. And here we see Paul giving instructions to slaves as if he was for the institution of slavery. How do we answer the critics when we are faced with this passage as we're here where Paul is telling slaves to obey their masters. Well, we certainly want to begin by answering this objection, but we also want to take a deeper look at the teaching of this passage and, and how it applies to us in our context today. To do this, I'll be ar arranging my remarks to answer some of these questions, or answer these questions. Uh, how are we to explain the Bible's stance on slavery, and how can we apply this passage to ourselves Today, Now, first, let's deal with these objections that uh, are commonly voiced when it comes to texts like this and others. Well, some people might say, well, there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't insist uh, on everyone following everything because some things are wrong, culturally regressive, primitive, and we can't accept these things today, such as slavery. Well, when we come to a biblical text like this one, we must be careful not to read our culture back into it. Doing this creates cultural blinders that keep us from seeing the truth and we uh, uh, can't see the application of the text to our lives appropriately when we do that. When we read a text, we uh, must see its relevance and we have to look at it through the lens of that culture's experience and the, the position that they were writing from so that we can then interpret it through the lens of our cultural experience, not the cultural and uh, not not confusing it with uh, not confusing our cultural experience with the cultural experience of those who've gone before us in which this was written. We need to do a we need a simple working knowledge of the history and culture of the era in which the Bible was written, and I want to give that to you. 
And I hope that this understanding will, will make what the Bible is saying here much clearer to us. Now the text before us uh, is one of those examples where people read their own culture back into the scripture. When, when people in our day and time read the words master and slave, they immediately, uh, images come to mind of the evil slave trade of the 17th to the 19th century uh, where people were stolen from their homes in Africa and sold into slavery by Europeans and Americans uh, as well as uh, Asians. The Muslims as well did that to Africa. This form of slavery was race-based. There was no legal opportunity for the slaves to gain their freedom once they were captured and sold into slavery. But this is not the slavery that the Bible tolerates. In fact, both the Old and the New Testament explicitly condemn the practice of kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. 1 Timothy chapter 1 condemns those who would enslave others by capturing them and kidnapping them, calling them ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, and contrary to sound doctrine. That doesn't sound like the Bible's endorsing this type of slavery that we saw in the early history of the United States. In Exodus 21, the Old Testament states, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now these condemnations are put in the strongest language possible. So what are we to make of Ephesians 6 where it says the slaves should obey their masters? Well, let's look a little closer at the culture of the Bible. Slavery in Israel. In the Old Testament, there are several chapters where slavery is regulated. Exodus 16, Leviticus 25, uh, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15. The slavery that was practiced uh, in the Old Testament was more like indentured servitude. A Hebrew might become a slave because of financial debt, for example, but the slave had rights. That was regulated by Scripture. And after six years, a Hebrew slave was by law required to go free. It was a law. They could not remain slaves. There were slaves from other nationalities, and, and these were often prisoners of war, and they were allowed, but they had rights, according to the Old Testament. They were not to be mistreated. Fast forward to the New Testament. We are in the context of the Roman Empire. Uh, God's law regulated society in the Old Testament, but now we're living in a pagan world, the Roman world, where things were not ordered according to God's law. A very high percentage of the population of the Roman world would have been slaves. It is estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman world in the Apostle Paul's day. That's a lot of slaves, 60 million. A huge percentage of the Roman population were slaves. And it is estimated that slaves composed about one-third of the population of a city like Ephesus. Now, in Rome, uh, in the Roman Empire, this entailed not only domestic servants, but it also uh, entailed manual laborers. And believe it or not, uh, there, were, there were people who were slaves who were part of the professional class. There were slave doctors, and there were slave teachers, and there were slave administrators. Quite different from what you see in the American South, uh, and actually in America in the 1800s. 
Now, in Rome, slaves were considered property. They could be inherited in Roman law, and they could be purchased and sold. They could be taken because of bad debt, and of course, many slaves were slaves because, like in the Old Testament, they were prisoners of war. However, it was not race-based. It did not involve kidnapping. And there was the opportunity for the slave to go free under certain conditions. And some slaves actually chose to go into slavery or to remain in slavery if they had a good master because the master provided for them. And it was kind of a form of social security, if you will. They didn't have social security back then. They didn't have retirement funds and plans like that. So if you were a slave in a good home with a good master, you might opt to stay in slavery. It was a very large reality in the Roman world. A large segment of the population, as I said before, was involved in it. And no one, as far as we can tell from reading uh, even secular history, no one seemed to question the propriety of slavery in the day. You'll find Stoic philosophers like Seneca, for example, who was a contemporary of Paul's. He argued that we ought to ease the bad conditions of slaves and grant rights and status that were often denied to them. But no one will you find, nowhere will you find someone questioning whether this relationship was right or wrong, morally principled or improper. It was accepted. Now when we come to the New Testament, and, and specifically what Paul says about slavery, uh, he applies uh, the gospel to life, and, and he's doing so, what we see him say, he's doing so in such a way that if, if, the, if his teaching was followed, then slavery would end itself. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, look, in Christ, there is no slave or free. We're all the same. We're all on equal footing. And if you buy into that frame of thought and you live it out in your life, Within a generation, slavery would end. Galatians 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And then you come to Philemon. In Philemon you have the case of a runaway slave. And Paul is writing and saying the slave is runaway and possibly stolen uh, from, from his master and he's writing the master and saying look, uh, this slave uh, has become a brother in Christ and I want you to receive him back not as a slave but as a brother he says in Philemon 15 for this, is, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother especially to me but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So you see, Paul, through his teaching, was regulating slavery, and if it was followed, would soon put an end to slavery. Paul does not endorse slavery, neither does the rest of the Bible. It's a reality of probably a third of the population. And for him to just say, let's end it all here, it would be revolt and would, would, would not uh, serve the purposes of the gospel in his day. He is accepting it as a common state in which many Christians would find themselves. And he's just merely giving guidance on how these relationships should be handled within a household. And he does this along with the other household relationships. Wives, husbands, children, and parents. Masters and servants. 
When God's word is applied to relationships, people are treated fairly and with justice. And that's what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 6. Now, for those who would say that Christianity is for slavery because of what the Bible says, well, just think about the end of the slavery that is in our historical experience. Who ended it? Well, it was Christians. It was Christians who fought to put an end to slavery. Yes, in the 1800s, there were Christians who defended slavery using texts like this, but what can we say other than they blew it? They misinterpreted it. Uh, they, they were faulty in their theology of it. I did hear it say one time that if the four most prominent Presbyterian ministers in the South in, in the 1860s would have spoken up definitively against slavery, then there would be no civil war. They really did blow it. There were some really influential Presbyterian ministers in that day. In fact, Presbyterianism was the largest denomination in the United States before the Civil War. And I don't wonder if those mistakes that were made by those leaders led to some of the demise of the Presbyterian Church in that day. Mistakes were certainly made, but Christians were at the forefront of ending slavery in Europe and America. Uh, people like, of course, William Wilberforce. He was an MP, a member of Parliament in England, and he fought tirelessly to put an end to slavery. I recommend the movie or the book Amazing Grace uh, that speaks of his life and his effort to end the slave trade. David Livingston, the Scottish missionary in Africa, he worked to end the slave trade that was being carried on in East Africa by the Muslims and in West Africa by the Christian nations. He spoke out against it uh, very strongly and worked tirelessly to end it. So slavery is not promoted in the Bible. It was a fact of life. How, does it, how should it be regulated? That's what the scripture is telling us. Not that it is a good thing or needs to be carried on. And certainly the type of slavery that involves kidnapping is definitely a sin and is wrong. Well, that brings us to the next question. What does this text have to say to us today? None of us are slaves or masters, thankfully. Uh, some of you might feel that way uh, when you think about your job. You might feel like a slave to your job. But in this section, Paul is talking about our most common relationships and, and how oh, the gospel can be applied to all of our life, um, husband, wife, child, parent, etc. The principles in this passage apply today in terms of submission to any lawful constituted authority, the only exception being if such a lawfully constituted authority were to require a believer to disobey God's word or fundamentally compromise one's commitment to Christ. And of course the most common application, as I've already hinted at, is the uh, relationship of employee to employer and vice versa. What an impact we can have uh, as Christians in society if we were to live out these principles that Paul gives us here in our workplace. If we were to live out what he says to masters and slaves in the context of our workplace, we can make a vast difference in our communities. Here we have an opportunity to bring much glory to God by being ambassadors for him at our jobs. Too many people who attend church uh, on the weekend and sometimes during the week, uh, they're faithful to do that, but once they walk out the door of the church, their Christianity does not travel with them. Paul realizes you spend most of your time 
at home or at work. And Christians should not live like pagans in these places. And that's why he's giving us this household table. Well, let's get into the, the, uh, the details of what the passage says for a few moments. What it means to be, first of all, a Christian employee. Christian employees work ultimately for their heavenly master uh, as they work for their earthly masters. Uh, who's your boss? You know, you might have someone, some earthly boss that you look to and who tells you what to do and, and lists out your goals and gives you expectations that he wants you to meet. Uh, you know your job. But Paul's big idea here in this passage is, not, is that we work not ultimately for our earthly master, but for Christ himself. He stresses this over and over. Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord and not to man. He's saying you, you carry out your earthly work as if you were working for the Lord. And since we are working for Christ, how should we work? He answers the question, first of all, with fear and trembling. And this just means with seriousness, with soberness, taking it seriously. Uh, there are four places in the New Testament where this phrase, fear and trembling, is used. Mark 5, 2 Corinthians 7, and Philippians 2. Uh, I don't have time to go into each one, but they all talk about how someone uh, approaches another person with fear and trembling, with humility, uh, not in a prideful, uh, righteous, indignant manner, but with humility, with a seriousness, taking what the person is saying to them seriously. And that's how Paul is saying we should carry out our work, seriously, because we're working for the Lord. We're not working for our human boss, per se. We're working for the Lord, and, and that's a serious matter. To serve the Lord with our work, we need to take it seriously. When God has given us uh, the opportunity to serve him in a job, we should take that with uh, uh, an amount of soberness and seriousness. He's giving us a task to do, and it ought to be regulated in that it is something that is good. Uh, you look at the, the end of the passage where it says uh, that we, knowing that whatever... Uh, rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, how do you know if you have a good job? Are you doing good for people? Is what you do ultimately serve the common good? And if so, you can do that for the Lord. You can serve the Lord as a teacher, uh, as an engineer, as a lawyer, as a doctor, etc. So with fear and trembling, be serious about it. With a sincere heart, he says. That means uh, purity of motive with sincerity, a singleness of purpose. What is your motivation? When you go to work, uh, well, if you think my motivation is to make money, well, that's going to give you certain uh, outcomes. Uh, it's going to lead to a certain style of life and certain values that will certainly take you off the rails. But when you think my purpose is to do good by serving the Lord in this job, well, that puts a completely different spin on what you're doing. So with a sincere heart, we are to serve the Lord in our work, that's our motivation. I want to bring glory to his name in my job. That's our singleness of purpose. And then he goes on, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Not to just try to impress people, not to just work when the boss is looking. You all know that guy in the office. You know, he, uh, he's always sucking up to the boss and trying to look good. He's not a hard worker. He's just 
He's just playing politics. He's, he's trying to get ahead by schmoozing. That's not what this is saying to do. This is saying not to do it like a, being a people pleaser or just to look good uh, in, in the eyes of the boss or whoever else we're trying to impress. Christians should work hard even when no one is looking because if God is our ultimate master, he is always looking because he's always there. He's always viewing what we do. We ought to keep that in mind. And then he goes on to say we should work with a good will. This word here means uh, uh, zeal, eagerness, wholeheartedness, to put our effort and energy into it. It's the opposite of working begrudgingly. And here's where I start meddling. Because how many times have we all gotten up and gone, oh, I don't want to go to work today. You know, I don't really want to do this job or I hate my job. I heard a statistic that said 75% of workers in the United States, which I think there's 24 million or something uh, close to that, 75% of them would like to fire their boss. They do not like their boss. They're unhappy and would like to make a change uh, in uh, their, their job. Well, this tells us that we ought to be uh, diligent and eager to do what God has given us to do, whatever our job might be, no matter how small or how important it, we might think it is. And then it goes on to tell us that Christ indeed will richly reward us for our faithful service. He's talking ultimately of Judgment Day, how we, how we carry ourselves on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis for the Lord in our jobs especially. We should serve Christ. Now, why should we serve Christ? Why should we work for him? Uh, it's really simple. Because he became a slave for us. We should be his servants because he was our servant. Paul tells us in Philippians that he, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to earth with a job to do, to serve us, to serve his heavenly Father by carrying out the mission the Father had given him, to pay the penalty for sin, to fulfill all obedience on our behalf. He came to earth and he served us. He did the greatest thing for us. The sinless Son of God stepped down from his privileged position and he got his hands dirty. He lived a sin, sinless life of the Lord. Verse 9, do the same. Masters, do the same to them. What does he mean by doing the same? Well, serve the Lord in your position as employer. Take it seriously as a ministry to the Lord and to your employees. Whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability for the Lord. And if you are the boss, do it for God in a God-honoring way. Stop threatening, he says. And the word there really means bodily harm. Like, I'm going to you know, beat you up if you don't do what I say. Uh, hopefully you don't have a boss like that, and hopefully none of you are bosses like that. But, but this ought to make us as employers think of how do we motivate our employees? Well, we should treat them fairly, not threatening them. Treat them with kindness and help motivate them in a good way, in a positive way. And then he reminds us that there is no partiality with God. That last statement that he makes really levels the playing field and agrees with all that I read before about what Paul says. In Christ there is no slave, there is no master. We're all on the same 
uh, level. Uh, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. He looks at both the same. The person who has the most menial job, uh, the person who has the highest paying job in the United States, it's all the same to the Lord. And when we're in Christ, we're certainly on that same level playing field. In Christ is true freedom. John, uh, John 8 tells us that Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When Christ sets us free, we're no longer slaves to sin, which is our ultimate slavery. We're free. And when we're free, we are free to serve, free to become slaves of Christ, free to serve him. Uh, we serve something. Every human being in this world is a slave to something. We, there's a reason we get up uh, in the morning. What drives you? What motivates you? What are you living for? For the Christian, it ought to be Christ. No matter what you do, no matter what your job is, you have the opportunity to serve Christ because he has made you free. So serve him, this one, this great one, who is our wonderful, kind, and gentle master. Let's pray together.